0: Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. I have a special guest today, John Bradford. I'm not even going to say where he's working right now because I'll let him share that, but also because he has been such a big catalyst in the European startup ecosystem that it would be uh, a disfavor to just limit him to one project since he's been involved with so many. And so today we're going to go through a lot of the projects that he's worked on that live on today, but also a lot of the feedback and a lot of the um, advice that he's given to founders over and over again that he has seen been uh critical in the development of a company as well as things that he has found have been great when looking for companies so with that thanks for joining us john
1: thank you for inviting me
0: and uh as you know we'd like to start with getting to know the person behind the 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 image and and that usually starts with college when we were all at our most awkward point in life i had hair you probably still have hair, so you're all right. Where did you yeah. come from? What did you do? What was your background?
1: I had I had even more hair, so um, this is a very long time ago. I'll not say how long, but if you if you looked at LinkedIn, you'll figure it out really quickly. Um, I born, brought up in Belfast. Um, was born the same year as the trouble started, which really does date me. Um, And in the late eighties went to university in Bristol. So Bristol's made up of two sorts of characters, those that are just glad to get there and those that got a massive chip on their shoulder because they didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, Late eighties, end of the Thatcher years, there were lots of students driving around in three series BMWs. Uh, Drove up and down the M4 uh, to Surrey. Um, I turned up in my Bon Jovi haircut uh, Long permed hair. I think there are some things to be glad when it comes to not having digital cameras at certain part of your life. I think there's about two pictures of me with a really bad mullet, uh, <laughs> and I uh, actually inherently uh, hated uh, university. Uh, look, I enjoyed it at the time, but somebody asked me, "Do I know anybody from university?" I technically only have one person I've ever kept in touch with. Um, and actually, we were just touching on, just about to touch on the story a, a few minutes ago. Um, Brissa University, after 25 years, eventually found their student records and decided to call me and sat down and started talking to me about uh, would I be interested in giving some money back. I said, 25 years later, you kind of haven't done a particularly good job. And and I already I, I already do charity, I do angel investment. So <laughs> I dismissed him very quickly. and. And actually, if I have a university to be thankful of, um, I think uh, a few people know I live in Cambridge, and Cambridge has done me very well and have supported me in a lot of the things I've done over the last uh, five, ten years. So, and, and some of the things I plan to do going forward will be much closer to Cambridge, hopefully. So what did you do? What was the first job you did after college, And Like
0: after you graduated, what was the first thing you did?
1: I worked as an. I qualified as a chartered accountant. I uh, worked for Arthur Anderson. Uh, that wasn't my fault. It was somebody else's. Um, for the best part of the nineties, I uh, worked in London, worked in Melbourne, and then came back just before the turn of dot com. So it's kind of I describe my life in about half or thirds, depending on how I'm feeling. So the first half of my life was. Working as a boring chart account inside accountancy firms. And the second part of my life was having escaped the the gravity, uh, the black hole that is accountancy and, and worked in it around startups, which is where I jumped ship in about 2000.
0: But what, you know, accounting and, and startups today, I think every single industry has some intersecting point with the startup community. But back then, like, you know, even when I was graduating from college, you know, there was like jobs that were very much expected, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineer, accountant, and it wasn't necessarily obvious that you would end up in the startup world. How, how was it that you started making those two worlds uh, intersect for you, for yourself?
1: I think, I think I've, i I follow Dave McClure closely and, and there's a kind of a pattern which is very similar that I see with Dave, which is I sort of, was like a fish out of water for the best part of 10 years of my life. I, I almost went and did this job because I had to. Um, and there really weren't other options available to me. Um, but as time has gone on, I've become much more comfortable in who I am and what I can be, um, and I've almost found a job that fits me. And so one of the big things I talk about when I do accelerators is nobody should take 20 years to figure out what they're good at and unfortunately I took 20 years which basically means I've got to do a lot of stuff in the next 20 years of my life. Um, so look, I think it's a real shift and it's a really positive shift which is one does a degree and then one doesn't have to go to into a corporate lifestyle whether it's accountancy or law or banking. I mean banking was the big thing at the time I was around. Um, being having, having those options I think is a really positive thing. Uh, Having said that, it's interesting, I would argue, that there is some value in the discipline of working for a larger organization before one jumps in, completely into a startup. And so I spend a lot of my time advising people to go and find really interesting series A, series B startups that are in their growth phase, and actually teaching people a different way of working, but in a structured fashion, which is high growth and interesting. Mm.
0: So what was that first startup gig that you did then? What was that transition, fully transition from accountancy into startup? Uh,
1: I joined uh, a company, I was about employee number six uh, as the financial director, otherwise known as CFO. Um, the irony is, it's a long story, and I'm trying to keep it short, is it was everything you would expect of a dot com in 2000. Uh, the two founders, one, they were both at Harvard, Uh, on um, scholarships. Uh, They had written this thesis about the inefficiencies in the B2B sector around paper industry. Um, One went off and joined Boston, one went off and joined McKinsey. After about eight weeks, they got really bored of watching their friends leaving to start a startup. So they decided they'd start a startup. This is the 1st of December, 1991. They went to uh, an investor, or a bunch of investors, and said, we need $10 million. And the investors came back and said, what would you do with 20 And so they went through and doubled all the spreadsheets and said, that's what we'll do. And suddenly, so we miraculously see the market it was twice as big. Um, Actually,
0: can I pause you there? Yeah, go for it. Because I would argue that we're seeing some of that today. And now that you, you've lived through that once, and you, yeah. you might have seen some of it, Flurry up again in two thousand and five, six before yeah. two thousand and eight happened. Yeah. What do you What do you think of that? Um, are we Are we kind of currently in a situation where you're seeing some of those early kind of situations happen? And and is it does Does additional capital like that actually mean that you have more of a war chest, or, or are you setting yourself up as a founder for completely uh, irresponsible use of cash because of the fact that it's there?
1: Let's try and have a longer conversation about that because I think the current market conditions are really interesting. And I think for those it's now January 2016, there's actually a weird thing which I think has happened over the last almost 120 days. There's been a shift underneath all of this. To put this into context, we ultimately raised $20 million on a pre-money of $40 million as a seed round. So anybody who thinks they're doing a big seed round at the minute ain't seen nothing compared to the madness that was 2000. Um, the, the dot, dot, dot of that story was we raised a ton of capital. We went from zero to 75 people in 14 countries in six months. We then fired half the people, um, which went down to 30 in a single location, and then three months later went bust. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a very well-known, and to avoid embarrassment, uh, VC in London who runs currently a Series A fund that was part of that funding team. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was just madness. I mean, it, the, the, the nice benchmark I've seen people play around with is, what's the percentage of money compared to GDP? But also the other more interesting one is, what is the number of internet connections vis-a-vis today versus 2000, and and they are profoundly different. But what's also interesting is a lot of the the, the business, not models, but the businesses that were being thought of in 2000 have actually come around again 10, 15 years later when there's much more infrastructure, better infrastructure to build those businesses on the longer term which is actually quite encouraging. We said it wasn't complete madness, but the way it was being funded and overestimations in the market were completely over. Mm-hmm. And I think if we see something in today's market, it's that people are very over, over-optimistic sometimes in the short term versus the longer term problems. And we should talk about that later. Uh, and part of that might be, I, I've got interesting thesis around that, around fintech as well which is uh, it's really fintech is a really big and interesting market but it doesn't come quickly to people and there was an interesting article over the weekend we said something to the effect on is venture capital the right approach to fintech i think it is but it feels more like it should be patient capital Mm. because you don't do mvps in fintech, it's like oh, guess what? Nine times in ten, it worked. The tenth time, who knows? Yeah, it, you you don't get any uh, forgiveness on the edges. Yeah,
0: no. Financial services different uptime expectations. Correct.
1: All right. So if we
0: go back to sort of the the, the now somewhat um, frustrated John Bradford post this explosion two thousand, what 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 came after that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was I've. If, if there's one trait I do have is, I'm a master of none and a tradesman of many. So in the intervening period, let's say there was another 10 years, I essentially worked in startups, early stage startups. I did a bit of corporate finance for a period, raising money for startups. And then I kind of played in the very shallow end with a regional venture fund in the northeast of England. So in this interim period, I'd gone from London to Oxford to London and then ultimately to Newcastle having met my wife and we were starting out to, to have a family. Um, went to Newcastle and as I regularly say to people, I didn't know anything about car building, I didn't know anything about ship building and I didn't do call centres and I went, oh crap, what am I going to do with my life? Um, there was a little bit of regional funding and venture funding and really tiny funds going on. And I uh, stumbled into running one of those funds, which deployed about a million pounds a year, check size about 150,000 pounds over five or six checks. And I worked with a number of different people to kind of reimagine what a Y Combinator or a Techstars would look like in the northeast of England, which caused huge amounts of hilarity at the time, which was... How could you even possibly think about doing Y Combinator in Middlesbrough? Yeah. Uh, what, what year was this? This was, oh, you're going to ask me hard questions. I think it was 2009.
0: 2009. Was yeah. This is a difference engine? Was this this was a difference
1: engine. And ironically, the best startup technically I've invested in uh, was in Middlesbrough in 2009 which was, uh, and everybody will know him now, by a different brand, which was uh, Bastien uh, Lehman, who started originally a business called, I think it was Koovaloo, I hope he doesn't have that dot com anymore, um, which then became curated by, the intersection where it became interesting was, it subsequently got money from a guy called Andy McLaughlin, who's now a VC at Tech, having been through Huddle, it was one of us it was technically its very first investment mm. um, and they ended up going on to angel Packed, uh, as a result from which postmates was created mm. so uh, the the data point which was really interesting was technically I invested 20,000 pounds into that business for eight percent that I'm estimating and I have no data to prove this but my guess is that that Investment at twenty thousand pounds is probably worth about five million pounds today. Mm. Uh, fortunately for him, he was smart enough to acquire back his eight percent for twenty thousand pounds the day after the program ended because it was a public-funded uh, venture. Yeah, and so they were just happy just to get the money back. Yeah, and unfortunately infor- for them, that organisation that acquired the money back no longer is in existence, so they don't have to explain why they passed on a five million circles uh, yeah. for their investment um, but what does all of that mean it sort of means I, I inadvertently stumbled on this idea which Sieg Camp had been playing around with and had done really well in London that actually the combination of little bits of money but the right sort of support actually could have a meaningful impact and it didn't have to necessarily exist inside London if I had done what I'd done in London, nobody would have thought twice about it. It was the fact that it had been done in Middlesbrough was the thing which suddenly people sat there and scratched their heads and went, oh, this is a bit weird because it's definitely not the environment. Um, It was the, the, the way one provided support that was interesting. So how many companies did end up going through
0: the Difference Engine?
1: Who ended up going through different sites and the biggest one was Basti, which ultimately came out as Postmates several years later. But how many total? total? It was nine
0: teams. Nine teams? Okay. Yeah. And then when, when did that move on to, when did you, from there to Springboard, when, when when did you start that?
1: So that program was shut down by the Conservative government, uh, well, it shut down everything north of the will for Gap as it came into power. Um, because it was perceived to be successful, a bunch of angels came to me and said, can we do this again? At that point, I said, I don't need to do this in Middlesbrough, I'll do it somewhere else. Having spent the great part of my life in London, I didn't want to do it in London. So I agreed that I would do it at Cambridge. The irony is, of the 10 teams that went through the programme at Cambridge, which became Springboard, and was supported by Neil Davison, who had originally done the original springboard. There's a few blogs about that. But essentially, there were 10 teams, only one was from Cambridge, nine were from elsewhere. And the irony is that 10th team from Cambridge now is in London, um, which I find deeply frustrating at the time, and still do, which is Cambridge is not perceived, and really doesn't hasn't built its digital chops so to speak the way wall street has um i i personally find it really annoying that cambridge on a public level on a perception level doesn't feel like it's pinching above its weight compared to what it might have done historically mm. I, I said that to somebody recently and they, they looked shocked but they were from cambridge so you've helped over the years
0: Start many different uh, programs, not just in Cambridge, not just in Middlesbrough, but also in Lithuania and Poland and Holland and Canada, in Moscow, Bulgaria, Estonia. And what, what learnings do you have? If, 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 let's say, a regional policy lead or a regional fund were trying to sort of start something, what have you learned from what is possible? What is a reasonable expectation of success? for a program starting off in a, in a non-London location, meaning like a location that perhaps hasn't got the, the, the volume already, but also kind of what is it that would hugely benefit, more than just money, what would hugely benefit these locations as different countries around the world are trying to build up their own ecosystems? Um,
1: so what do I think? I think Having been through the process and as someone who's now stepped outside of accelerators um, to think about doing all this stuff, accelerators represent the MVP for early stage investment. And so when you're doing it, it might not fit in this way, but actually it is the easiest way of starting a little, little, little venture fund. Um, And so it's actually really relatively easy to do. And that's why there's so many of them. Um, I, think, I, think, I thought you were going to go on off and ask me a different question, which was there's now this huge proliferation of them. Um, I think we're, we're just about to hit a whole ton of churn in the market. Um, what you tend to find is nobody ever announces their close, but they just never reappear. Um, and they will be backfilled with other people who believe that it's possible to do these things. I think they're really interesting vehicles, and, and if governments can capture this around teaching potentially early stage uh, angels how to start and give them a little bit more money. Um, I also think that the, the model that, I have to say this, no I don't have to say this, that camp have adopted over time, which is building a great capital base is the right way to approach it. Mm. Um, because essentially, the proof of, the real proof in the pudding is can you make returns? And actually, if you can demonstrate you make returns and you can build yourself a better fund behind that, you actually can make them long term sustainable. The ones which never break almost uh, gravity, so to speak, or get into orbit are the ones which kind of go up and then fall down. Mm. Um, so, I think can governments intercede? No. Yes, but they need to be uh, willing to let them fail as well. But almost on a personality level, it's like almost uh, uh, the Grundespans in the U.S. In Germany are based around how do you teach VCs mm. to learn how to be our young, young VCs to become VCs. There's almost a model around this which says if you can find really good angel investors in your local market and you want to put a bit more money behind creating an institution which is money and support, I think it's a really interesting place to be.
0: Mm. But if you look back at sort of the expectations, for example, you were talking earlier about Cambridge and only one company yeah, uh, being from Cambridge and ultimately having to move to London. If you look at kind of what people said about Middlesbrough, what is, what is the thing that would make those locations as, in, in your view, what would make them stand out as hubs of their own? Or is it something that you know, that certain locations around the UK, but maybe not so much the UK, but also abroad, that they just have to come to terms with, like, what their strength is and then promote the the companies to move to geographies like Silicon Valley where maybe the growth really comes from.
1: Yeah. What you're describing, I think you touched on it, which is build on what you know best. Yeah. So... Middlesbrough was an amazing place, it helped set up those businesses, but by the way, within 90 days, none of those businesses were in Middlesbrough. It was kind of almost like we set up a bunch of tents, we had this campfire, we did this boot camp, and then we folded down the tents and left. Um, I think one of the things which is really important is for regions to identify what are they good at, and not try, which is what governments do, to do the stuff they're not good at. The interesting thing is governments are all about intervention of the The market's not worked in this way and has failed and so they tend to try and do things that they're not good at, which is stupid because actually they're better doubling down on the stuff that they are good at in a given region. So I spent a bit of time in uh, the south of France and they're doing a food and wine accelerator. It's not necessarily about the food and wine, but it's about the the structures, the infrastructure, the technology that can help support that industry. That's inherently really interesting. Um, I'm spending a bit of time in the US with some friends who are uh, successful entrepreneurs in their own right in the logistics business, and they're really interested in doing something comparable as well. When you build on institutional knowledge which has been built up, and that is your unfair advantage. That's where it becomes interesting. I think the other interesting part is we're just about to go through a renaissance around enterprise Mm. and how it shifts into the cloud and how innovation hits it. And so therefore, looking at geographies and looking at what their industry is and being able to support that, I think also creates another opportunity for Um, technology innovation Mm. in that intersection between large and small
0: Mm. so if you maybe a bit controversial but if you were to go back to you know the john of 2009 and say for people not to pitch and leave their tents in Middlesbrough the strength of that region would be what meant because you mentioned manufacturing would would, would you focus on manufacturing
1: Middlesbrough doesn't really have a lot going for it um I'm just trying to think and remember. It has a football team which kind of goes up and down. I mean, they have the most passionate people. They have a really good university. But the problem with university and grads is that it's a long-term build. It's not something that happens overnight. Um, I had the good fortune of I had government money which basically said, we've got a hole in the system, we want you to fill it. Mm. And I filled it temporarily but as soon as I had gone it was gone um, I think it comes down to people having the balls to recognise what they are good at and what they're not good at and I think th- government doesn't like admitting what it's not good at and the stuff it's not good at it tries to almost fill the whole up mm. uh, so uh, stick to what you're good at and then build on it and look, we all know we had the cliche as software is eating the word blah blah blah, mm. but it essentially still comes down to the as enterprise comes on, as the word fundamentally changes, I'm hugely bullish about what the impact of technology is going to have over the next ten years. I think it's going to be the most incredible change. Now there's going to be. Uh, over enthusiasm in the short term and it's going to go up and down along the way but in 10 years time we won't even be able to comprehend Mm. what the world looks like compared to it is today and that is happening in many different geographies and in many different sectors and many different industries Mm. and that's the really exciting part to me about Mm. what the next 10 years represent
0: So maybe that's a good uh, point to sort of ask you the question as to why you do all this because, you know, I think you're one of those people that maybe um, doesn't get enough credit for building the ecosystem the way you have, you know, and being a facilitator of that. You know, as I mentioned before, you know, there's easily eight countries where you have created programs for founders to be able to re- get support locally, and you know, the that's no easy feat, especially for this is in some cases before you had the leverage of the Techstars brand. Um, before that, that springboard became tech stars. Yeah, and so maybe, maybe you can share with us, like, why? Like, what, what was like? What was your, what was driving you? Because I'm an
1: old fart. <laughs>
0: You're an old fart.
1: Yeah, um, I, I have this view, which is, uh, depending upon which side of forty you are, you think of the world in different ways. Mm. I think you become much more conscious of wouldn't use the word legacy or more about what you leave behind when you have kids and you're of a certain age. And, and actually, this this be completely honest. I'm not actually very good at startups, but I'm really good at, I describe myself as, I'm not a very good athlete, but I'm a pretty good coach. Yeah, And actually, if you look back at history, there's not necessarily a direct correlation between the athletes and coaches, they're they different personas. Um, Also, the one thing I've had the good fortune of is I get to hang out with really smart people, but actually all the things I've helped start are infrastructure. So if I look at success, it's a piece of infrastructure to help support the wider uh, entrepreneurial community. If I look at what Robin's done, amazing job with tech.eu, to me I look at it as a piece of infrastructure which is necessary uh, for the tech community in Europe. And, and actually, the staff, so I've just recently joined Centre Working Co Workspace. Guess what? It's another piece of infrastructure. Actually, there's something inherent about me that actually gravitates away from, I don't want to pick one given startup in a given sector because it feels like really cramping my style or it feels really high risk. I tend to think of stuff in functions rather than in, in verticals, if that makes sense. Um, But all of that is coming back to that notion idea of, I feel that I want to be impactful. One of the things I've been working through in my last kind of six months as I've come out of Techstars is working out what I want to do next. And actually I've come up with a framework which has no function in it. And the four key criteria are have fun, make money, work with the smartest people I know, a mega dent in the world. And that can cover off many different attributes. Um, I just love helping people. And if you wanted to go full circle, maybe that's because I was born and brought up in Belfast. I was born and brought up in a community which was rife with violence and sectarianism. and 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 the number of opportunities which existed at that point in time were very low and so I kind of look at this as like, I just feel like a kid in a candy shop. It's like, how many people can I help in a day? Actually, I don't know if you feel this, this is quite interesting. If you ever sit through a meeting and you talk to someone and they help you more than you help them, I feel pretty like upset about that. Cause like, I, sh- I feel like I should be helping you more than the other way around. almost so like this gamification of mm. like helping or giving forward uh, but and and I think there's a whole generation which are now in highly influential places uh Reshma Saul um yourself many other people who've been at this a while but the reason they've been at it a while and the, way, the reason they're still here is they're good at it and they have helped provide support so I think a lot of what you see is a demonstration of those that have actually put the effort in at an early stage without necessarily an obvious form of reward at the other end. Mm. On,
0: a, on a less serious note, uh, for those of you that are, are on audio and obviously have not seen John, he doesn't look like he's over 40. I would say he, <laughs> he looks like he's 35. <laughs> um, I've, I've lost. <laughs> I've lost about like
1: a stone and a half. You do look I, like you've lost weight since since I stopped TechStars. I've stopped having beer. I've stopped eating pizza. <laughs> so wow, you know you definitely look. Like I had to lost I have to find weight. something to do since I, I stepped down. So you have to fill. It's almost like I yeah. describe it like an addiction. Like everybody in this arena. Is has some form of mad addiction, it's investment, it's starting businesses. And so you kind of, you know that if you're an alcoholic, you kind of have to take up smoking. Yeah. You have to swap one addiction <laughs> from another. So my wife hates me at the minute because I've been losing weight, because I've been just like completely fixated about what I eat and exercising. And so I really, really need to find a job to do.
0: Yeah, no, he, John's wearing two fitness trackers on his, on his <laughs> wrists. I, don't, I see why. He's obsessed about his health right now. Um, well, th- talking about health, uh, the health of a company is, is something that, you know, as investors, we look at to, to invest. And, you know, as we mentioned, you've, you've worked with so many companies over the years. Um, not only your role as, as a CFO and being inside and seeing what it takes for a company to scale, And then what would cause its ultimate demise, but also all the investments that you've done over the years of accelerator. Let's, let's jump a little bit into sort of the things that you have seen be the success factors and failure factors for startups. Now I know that every time we are on a panel, you, you go on about team, 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 but let's unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, what, what, um, if we start off with just team and then we'll go into the other functional areas, what are the things that you've seen succeed and fail? So the founders who are listening to this can determine like their likelihood of being either
1: direction on the basis of their team. So I'm going to sort of ask you a question as well at the same time. Mm-hmm. Is I'm going to answer this, but as someone who who spends a lot of time thinking about the decisions they've made, um, as investors we spend a lot of time thinking about the decisions we've made, positive and negative is trying to ensure that one has some level of honesty reflecting upon those decisions. And it's really hard to explain that to somebody who doesn't make decisions, but essentially, or makes investments, is does one in retrospect see things that were there or weren't there? Or does one create a framework of how you make decisions based upon what you think the right and wrong results were? So I'm I'm pretty obsessed with I have theories around some of those statements. And most of them are cliches. Um, And there's reasons they are cliches is because actually more often than not they happen. The thing you start with is there's always the exception to everything. Yeah, I start with that. What I've learned around uh, teams, what do I know about teams? I think what's really interesting is I've almost switched Cross from everything has to be about a team, about the people who put, come together to start, everybody knows that there has to be a business guy, there has to be a sales guy, there has to be a tech guy, um, or gal, sorry, um, that's a, a generic statement. Um, but what's really interesting is that with the last few teams that I was working with, I actually found an interesting uh, affinity towards single founder businesses that have a capacity to like almost weave a magic over early employees and convince people that they wouldn't necessarily join join a business for a single founder. And then interestingly is, if you can get beyond the, the gravity or the, the, the orbit, so to speak, of that seed round and get to series A, that kind of finding team falls away or the founder, single founder, because you completely remove founder breakup, which is singularly the biggest problem which exists in early stage businesses, which is something I probably wouldn't have said four or five years ago, but it's really hard to find single founders who have the capacity to have this magic over early stage business. I mean, what have you seen?
0: Yeah, founder breakups, are probably, yeah, the biggest problem that we have as well. Um, and I think that it comes down to the fact that whenever you start a company, you have this this, uh, this meaning behind why you're starting that company. And as time goes on, either there's a mutual alignment of that or there's a division between the, the founders as to what the ultimate purpose and meaning of the company is and the role that that person has in it. The companies that tend to do poorly are those where the role division is ambiguous and the individual meaning is not aligned. And so early on, if, if we see that that's happening, you know, there's discussions there to be had whether or not there can be more clear role division. But in spite of role division, once it's been allocated, if there's still sort of a, a misdirection in, in meaning, then people get frustrated. And, yeah. they, and that frustration creates conflict and then conflict leads to ef- effective dropouts and, and people leaving. And that's where, you know, from a legal point of view, that's where reverse festing yeah. bails the company out. But yeah I mean that's kind of what, what I've seen in terms of team but I, I think do you think that the model of you know the the, the stereotypical model of you know uh, you hire a hacker a hustler and what was the other one um, Pass.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but anyway like the, the do you think that the predetermined roles are that important or do you think that in some cases um, having just two people that are really passionately aligned is, is sufficient what, what have you seen work
1: um, if, if I have the choice, one of the interesting things that we did when I got to the late stages in Techstars was when we were getting to the final decisions about who we had participated in the programme or not, we had actually this interesting fallback decision, which was we go through a standard process. We would talk about team. We talk about market opportunity. We talk about product traction, funding, blah blah blah. But we had this almost default position at the very end, which was: if we knew nothing else about this business apart from the people standing in front of us, who were the founders, would we pick this business or not? Um, and interestingly, we had we have rejected a couple of teams, and as it is the case in certain instances, it was a correct decision. Certain since it wasn't, but I thing the thing that I consistently see uh, with the, the teams which are more successful than not is the team shines so brightly amongst everything else but the problem sometimes you have as an investor is you get distracted by traction, oh but they've got customers or they've got early-stage revenue or look at the growth curve um, and the reality is Unless you have jumped in and said, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to invest. It's like, well, why didn't you do that? And it's probably because there's some inherent like, concern about the team or there's a nag in the back of your head. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so so heavily, heavily focused. And, and the problem you have is how do you pick one girlfriend versus another? I know there are certain people who have natural attributes towards certain types of the opposite sex Mm -hmm. but the reality is you kind of mix it up and you meet different people and they mean different things and to some degree when you do investment there's almost that kind of process of you just need lots of data points and from the data points you just have to be completely obsessive about self-examination of are these the right decisions have we done the right thing if I had to go through this process again um, and you collect this almost mental map in your head of, if it's like this, we could probably do these other things which would offset those risks. Mm. But coming to your original question, do people have to sit in boxes? No. Mm. I think the thing that I just want to see is an, a complete obsession by the founders of the company about fixing a problem, mm. full stop, end story. If if I have that, um, even if it's not a successful business, I still feel comfortable in making that investment because at least I've had a shot at it and I've got the right team to have mm-hmm. run at it.
0: So I've, I've definitely been in situations, I'm sure you have, where you're, you're backing that team that you feel that. Yeah. but the, the ideas that they bring to the table aren't always in the state or in a market that kind of inspires, and yeah. in some cases it can be... Um, Quite a small market, and it, you you kind of wonder like yeah. why why would you pick this? And I think one of the things that maybe um, founders and maybe later stage tech EU or yeah. tech crunch readers don't appreciate is the the at the very early early pre seed seed stage how much yeah. this stuff just seems like it could, it could literally not be big enough to justify a fast growth company. Yeah. How did how did you reconcile, for example, like let's say you had found this amazing team, but they were yeah. working on a problem that you thought like Actually, this isn't like a huge market, Um, but these guys are going to figure something out. How did you reconcile that in your head?
1: So I think there's one of two, I think, answers to that. One is, it is a small market. And then I would argue is, how smart is the team? Because they're trying to address a small market. If it really is a smart team, it's more often than not, as an investor, I don't have enough data that market and really underappreciate the size of the opportunity and we can see this and you can probably see this on, on days when you bring mentors in is they sit down and go i did not think this is a big issue and then i sat down and talked to the team and they went oh my god this is huge like why did nobody tell me this and that's amazing because you have a small team addressing what is perceived to be a small market but it's a big one the amount of competition around that area is going to be small. So I think it's coming back to that you just need more and more data. Um, I don't. It's not often I see a smart team addressing a small problem. The ones I really like, and I had a few of those quite recently, was entrepreneurs that have been through, done something before, had a modest exit, enough to pay a mortgage off, but not enough to live off. And when they come back the second time, more often than not, they really want to swing for the fence. And so they already have the data point, mm-hmm. which is I can do this, and I've seen a version of the story. Mm-hmm. I haven't played it out the same way, but they tend to be, I think, a little bit more aggressive about. It. And so, and, and in that process of being aggressive, there is equally a much higher chance that it may not succeed.
0: But I mean, you know, there's a lot of founders out there who perhaps don't necessarily go for something that's a small market, but it will sometimes jump into markets that are highly competed. Yeah, you know, I was meeting with another founder the other day absolutely every every the team has every pedigree that you could possibly ask Mm -hmm. and they got along very well super smart but competing in a market where the sales cycles were very very long um, early stage you know meaning that they were not necessarily raising enough money to be able to deal with traction at that long sales cycle and at the same time in a space where like there's a lot of substitutes that companies are using and as a consequence like not only are you trying to sell them on this you're trying to convince them off of something that is yeah. free or yeah. cheaper to something that is better for them but you know there's some convincing there how did you how did you deal with those kinds of circumstances did you ever as a coach like push them or did you you know look at pass or did you pivot or or, or did you just kind of let it be and just let them crack on what what was your your view on that
1: so this is the advantage of something like an accelerator program which is It's really hard for a one-to-one conversation with someone. Um, However, if you've gone through a process by which you've spoken to 25, 30 people on the same subject matter with different backgrounds and different points of view, and the conclusion at the end of that is constantly you shouldn't do it this way, you shouldn't do it this way, you shouldn't do it this way. Cannabis is just almost brute force attack rather than a pincer movement. I mean, I have the advantage if I sweep in behind and go Guys, do you really think this is a great idea? And mm. um, what have you learned through the process?
0: And have you ever seen a situation where like 25 people have said, don't do this, and then the founders did it and proved everyone wrong?
1: Um, I'm just about to have one of those teams do that. Oh, really? But actually, interestingly, I uh, uh, the, 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 the entrepreneur is amazing. And part of that was he wasn't articulating the problem. It's kind of, he had spent a lot of time doing customer development and just couldn't tease out exactly what he was doing, mm. and it was um, I could probably say. So it's a guy. It was called Kimono. I think it's when I changed its name. And I went through two programs ago, and it's essentially Slack for Enterprise. Mm. So Slack's amazing at small teams up to about fifteen people, but try to deploy it to an organization with two hundred plus, it kind of just collapses in a big motion, um, and. And he really struggled to explain that the, the team, the dynamics of the product had to be different from a large organization, from a small, or it's much easier to do it in mm. respect. And he has been signing up corporate clients like nobody's business. I mean, it's looking to do... Really so he's proven wrong. everyone wrong. He's proven everybody wrong. That's and, and similarly, uh, my bet was entirely on him. But the flip side of that is, I can give you examples. A long time ago, if you look at Trey that um, came in um, I remember Trae. I remember mentor- mentoring
0: them downstairs at campus
1: yeah so Trey came into one of my programs they actually quit their idea on the first day of the program and then spent yeah. I think about 12 months trying to figure out what they wanted to do and are doing incredibly well I mean, and the other one was Tettle which became Hustle mm. which was she was trying to do uh, Alex was trying to be a marketplace for local services for local people and then kind of really focused down into uh cleaning business and effectively saying rather than do a marketplace just do one thing and do really, really well. And on both occasions those were the right things to do. So coming back to the um, you just the bit you can't change really the only thing you can't change is the founding team. Mm. Everything else is flexible. Mm. Um, And so having a smart enough team to know when to push and when not to push and Mm. change those things. And, And you have to as an investor be able to give up one's rights around that and allow them to go through the decision-making process. Your job is to help provide as much support and data and coaching and network but ultimately you are still relying upon the founder finding a way through. It's not your job, it's their job. Mm. Well, we we always like
0: to draw things to a close with a chance for you to talk about kind of what your latest project is and, and <laughs> kind of what, what, you know, plug something that you're really passionate about and and I know that since Techstars, you've you've kind of been working on several things, but maybe this is a chance for, for you to share kind of what you're working on and any, any way that, you know, the community who's listening can can support your work.
1: Uh, so, um, the biggest thing I'm trying to do at the minute is try to figure out whether I'm unemployable or unemployed. <laughs> um, for, for the non-English speaking people, I'm, I apologize. There is a small nuance in that. Um what am I trying to do? That's a good question. I, I have a thing that I can't talk about. When's this going night? <laughs>
0: this is going out whenever you want it to go out. <laughs> you can go out in two years if you want. No, it's <laughs> fine.
1: Um, so there is a project that's coming together in Cambridge, which is about 10 minutes from the house, which I am completely, uh, really excited about. It it has the capacity to really be impactful. Um, I'm working with a couple of people around it. It's another infrastructure type business. Um, It's a long project. Um, It can really move the needle. Um, I'm really excited about it and, and the relationship that Cambridge has to Cambridge, Cambridge to Kings Cross. Uh, I will come back and talk about that because I think there's, there's a ton of stuff I want support and help around that. Mm. That is really, like, how do we really capture the value which sits inside Cambridge and make it part of an even bigger and more expanding ecosystem. Um, there's a ton of other things I'm, I'm doing really badly at the minute. Uh, there is a rumour that I am trying to raise a venture fund, that may or may not happen. Um, I am completely fixated by fintech, uh, my last three investments don't tell a wife of beyond blockchain businesses, uh, I don't expect all three of them to come off but we'll see. Um, so obsessive about fintech, obsessive about blockchain to a degree you have no idea. Um, I think blockchain really, when people talk about internet 2.0, I think blockchain is just mind-blowing in terms of its capabilities. Uh, Also completely obsessive about um, corporate innovation. I think the intersection between large and small and how one can help the other, I think is really interesting. I think accelerators represent version one of that intersection between those two. I think uh, corporate VCs are are, their impact, I think, is yet to be felt. Another version, I think, is two or three other things which can come out, can mm. bubble out of that. Um, the, the the numbers when you come to corporate innovation dwarf like venture funding uh, by a scale that you have never perceived. Mm. Um, that's going to be hugely impactful in consulting businesses. So there's a whole reinvention of what a consulting business does. The Accenture's of this world, the Cap Gems of this world are going to have to rethink how they do their businesses. Uh, too many things to answer and too little time. Mm. And I'm trying to figure out, I, 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 I tried to decide I was going to do one thing. And, and by the way, um, I need to spend more time with Robin and Tech EU. I need to spend more time with Sean at F-Success, which is absolutely killing it at the minute. Um, and so I'm, I'm feeling really badly through the process of trying to do a thing mm. when there are so many opportunities. So I need to learn how to say no. Mm. So 2016 is I have to say no to a bunch of stuff, not yes.
0: All right. Well, thanks for joining us, John, and for sharing your your work and, and all, all the great things that you've done over the years for, for the European ecosystem. My pleasure. Thank you
1: for the podcast. They're amazing. Cool. All right, guys, until next
0: time. Bye. Cheers.